In Jonah chapter, uh, actually the book of Jonah, we've been seeing the sovereignty of God. That he is the one who's controlling a storm. He's the one who's directing even the casting of a lot so that it can uh, uh, point out Jonah, the one who is uh, responsible for the storm that had come. He's the one who prepared a great fish. Later in the story, he's going to prepare uh, a worm and a plant. You see God's sovereign direction. And when we think about God being sovereign, well, that certainly has application to our response to his calling and commands to us. And that's what we found in chapter 1, the calling of God in light of uh, sovereignty. Then we also saw the sovereignty of God as it relates to prayer. That's chapter 2. So we figured out that though God is absolutely sovereign, we can still come to him and cast our cares upon him. We can pray. We found in chapter 2. And today we're finding the sovereignty of God as it relates to repentance. That God is the one who is working. And yet we also see how the people of Nineveh respond to him with fear. And how that God turns from his fierce uh, wrath against their sin. Let's stand with me, please, with reverence for the Lord and his holy word. I'd like to read Jonah 3 in its entirety again. It's not a long chapter. And though we read it earlier in the in the service, it's the word of the Lord that speaks to us. And so let's hear it once again. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. The Lord has his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Would you please be seated? Thank you for your prayers and concern. I'm feeling a whole lot better than my voice sounds. And so please uh, bear with me this morning as again, I'm struggling with a little bit of a voice problem. Well, how we are grateful that ours is the God of the second chance. Whether it was Billy Sunday or D.L. Moody or David Brainerd or any of the great Preachers of past generations, they've all understood their own sin and how terrible it was. They all understood the grace and the mercy of God. Perhaps the one who best understood God as the Lord of the second chance was John Newton. John Newton wrote the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The reason those words are so greatly loved by us is not just because of tradition and not just because it's such a singable song and transcends cultures to where numerous different cultures are able to sing and enjoy that song, but because it so relates to us and we are able to relate to it and recognize that God is indeed merciful, God is gracious, and he is the God of the second chance. John Newton himself experienced that and knew better than anyone else uh, of God's grace. He recognized his own sin. He had been a sailor who was part of the slave trade. And as part of the slave trade, he had, as a sailor, he'd travel and was filled with vile language and taking of the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, he 
often gave himself to the drinking and the drunkenness that was part of this, a sailor's life at the time. And then he also knew how uh, the depth of his own depravity and, and murder and rape and things that they had performed against the slaves of the time. When they were taking the people from Africa into the West Indies, one out of three of them in the voyage would die. And many of them died because of beatings and murder that had happened on that ship. Many of those sailors, including John Newton, were guilty of uh, fulfilling their own lust and their own lustful desires uh, upon some of the women that had been taken from Africa. And so there were horrible immoralities that took place. And John Newton was aware of all of that uh, before he came to grace and mercy. And he came to understand that God is indeed the God of the second chance. <clears throat> that is a message that we don't just love, but that's a message that fills all of Scripture. The New Testament is certainly a message of grace and truth, because that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. But some people are mistaken in thinking that God of the second chance would only be a New Testament theme, when reality is, is found throughout the Scriptures, including in an Old Testament prophet named Jonah. Jonah himself was one who experienced the second chance that God had granted to him, and he watched it with his own eyes that God had, as God gave second chance to the people of Nineveh. And so when we come to Jonah chapter 3, it's really... A simple message that we find, ours is a God of the second chance. And Jonah's second chance is found in verses 1 through 3. Nineveh's second chance is found in verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, interesting that this is the second time that it comes to Jonah, and all of what we've read previously feeds us this moment when we recognize that God is again giving this second chance. We're told in the Psalms and Proverbs that a righteous man will fall seven times and rise up yet again. So what we're finding is that the second chance is not just for beginning the Christian life, but the second chance is necessary for those of us who as servants of the Lord recognize we need not just a second, but a third and a fourth and maybe up to a 70 times seventh chance as we continually fall and are needing to rise up yet again. But that is the message of the New Testament. That's the message of the scriptures themselves. It's a message that says God gives continual, repeated chances, mercy and forgiveness. And though you may fall seven times, you can rise up yet again. There was uh, Simon Peter who needed a second chance. Peter was the one who had come to Jesus and had proclaimed his own faithfulness and said, Lord, even if everyone else forsakes you and rejects you, I will remain with you. I'll even die for you. And Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, before you, before, uh, before the Caught crows twice. You're going to deny me thrice. Three times tonight, you're going to deny me. And so in spite of all of his best intentions and efforts, he disappointed by denying the Lord those three times. The last time, even with cursing and cussing and with strong, vehement uh, denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that after all of that disappointment and failure, here's a man who came and found a crucified, risen uh, and buried and risen Savior, the Lord Jesus, who came to Simon Peter and said, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love, love me, tend my lambs. If you love me, feed my sheep. And so continually he was coming to him, giving him a second chance. What a wonderful truth. God of the second chance was necessary for a servant of the Lord named John Mark. John Mark, as a, <clears throat> as a young man, had traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. We don't know if it was because of homesickness. We don't know if he had become discouraged or if there was financial problems or if he'd gotten sick. But we do know that John Mark bailed out on that missionary journey and, and left. He went for home. And uh, when they were ready to go on a second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had a dispute among them as to whether John Mark should come. Barnabas said, I want to bring John Mark and I, I want to give him a second chance. And 
Paul was the one who said, no, adamantly, he said, he has failed us before. We're going to go our separate ways. And so Paul and Silas went one direction, and Barnabas and John Mark went a different direction. John Mark found not only a second chance with Barnabas, but later he found a second chance with Paul. When Paul said, I want you to bring Mark to me because he's useful for me in ministry. That's a reminder that no matter how young, no matter how frail, no matter how disappointing we may be, and no matter how many times we might fall, there is the second chance that we can be restored to usefulness. Jonah is finding that same exact message, even though it was hundreds of years before Paul or Peter or John Mark ever existed. Jonah was the one who had gone his own direction. He had rebelled against the commandment and the commission of the Lord. And having gone his own direction, he experienced the chastisement of the Lord where he was in a a storm. Soon he had to be cast out of that storm into the deep sea. When he was in that sea, he was swallowed by a fish. And it was through that fish that he encountered God and saw how small he indeed was, how great God was. And he had to do some business with God, much like the psalmist David would say. When David said, I considered my path and I turned my feet to your statutes. The idea is a recognition that there's a continual repenting or a continual turning of our ways back to the ways of the Lord. And so the second chance that we find in Jonah is the second chance of a servant. And as a servant of the Lord, here's someone who hasn't just found God's grace to be sufficient for saving him and coming into the Christian walk and the Christian godly way of life. But instead, he's someone who recognizes I need to continually examine my ways and I need to turn my feet and turn my paths to God's way. He's finding that repentance is necessary uh, moment by moment, day by day in this Christian life. That may be something that you're experiencing. Maybe you're in a place where you've been disobedient. Maybe you've gone your own path. Maybe you've disregarded the commands and instructions of God and are experiencing some of that chastisement. And I don't know if it's a calling. I don't know if it's a command that you've disregarded. But if you're going your own way, then you need to understand that God is the God of the second chance, will chastise you and bring you to a place where you recognize I need to turn and go his way. What you note about this is that the word of the Lord came the second time to Jonah. And notice verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. What's interesting about verse 2 is that that's exactly the same commission he had received back in Jonah 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. In other words, when you get this second chance, you don't come on your own terms and somehow manipulate God so that he'll change his commands and instructions. It's the exact same commission, it's the exact same calling, it's the exact same command that had been given to him. Go and cry out to Nineveh, that great city. So Nineveh is still the needy place. It's still the place that he wants to go. He hasn't been able to bargain and somehow convince God that he should do something different. He goes to that great city, Nineveh. Great in what sense? Well, it's great and it's important in its size. It was a great city and that it would take three days to walk through it and proclaim the message. Uh, there are some who had excavated or, or measured it as uh, historians back in the day. And there's, a unbelie- there's the belief that it was 60 miles in its circumference. That means there's a great distance of just the city within the walls. But then there's also there's the farmland and the communities there outside of it. Nineveh was indeed a great city. Part, partly it was great in its size because it was also great in its history. It goes all the way back to Noah's grandson, Nimrod, who had planted or started this city and had all of those years to grow and develop. This goes back into the cradle of civilization. It's a great city, a lot of tradition that Jonah would have been crying out against. And then finally, it was great in its population. If we can 
read and understand Jonah chapter 4 to say that there was 120,000 of those who did not know their right hand from their left hand. That's an indication to me that we're talking about infants, 120,000 just small children who don't know their right hand from their left hand. And if that were the case, then imagine, multiply that by all of the adults and you have well over a million people. And that's especially a great city when you consider that the city of Samaria in northern Israel, where Jonah was from, uh, that city of Samaria only had 30,000 inhabitants, as big of a city as it was. And it is a capital city. <clears throat> Most of the people weren't living in cities at that time. They're out living in villages and living on the farms. But compared to 30,000 in Samaria, I'm telling you, the million people of Nineveh was a great city. And this is the same exact commission that had been given. So nothing's changed about the commission. Nothing's changed about the command. It's Jonah that has changed. And it's Jonah is now who's the one who's willing to obey. And that's why we read in verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Perhaps those are uh, the words that you most need to hear this morning. Maybe you're a servant of the Lord who has trusted in Christ as your Savior. You've walked with Him, and yet, for some reason, in some way, you've got off on your own path. I'm not saying that you're rebelling against some sort of missionary call to go to Africa or wherever else it may be. I'm not telling you that you're uh, rebelling against some sort of calling of God upon your life for vocational ministry. There could be many commands or commissions or directions that God has given, and you've chosen to go your own way. And as you're sitting here today, you may not be in the belly of a fish. You may not have gone through a storm at the sea, but you're still experiencing the chastisement of the Lord. And as you're experiencing that chastisement of the Lord, you need to know that God is the God of the second chance. And if you'll repent, if you'll turn, if you'll walk in his ways, there is forgiveness, there is mercy. However, do not think that somehow you'll come on your terms and somehow have God change his mind. Too many of us are like small children who come to their mom and think that if you just go your own way, throw a temper tantrum, that somehow mom will change her instructions. She told you to clean, uh, to clean your room. And you think if you throw just enough fit, that maybe she'll come and say, well, don't clean your room. At least pick up some of your things from downstairs. Well, that's not how it works out with God. When it works out with God, it's the same exact command, the same instruction. And no matter how much temper tantrum you might throw, there needs to come to a place of submission where you come to him in repentance and do exactly what God had said. You see, repentance is not so much, it's not so much, um, it's not so much defined by Jonah. You don't look at this and say, Jonah, repent. Instead, you find it being described. Jonah was going his own path, choosing his own direction, where he said, God wants me to go that way, but I'm going to go this direction. And when he was aided by that fish who swallowed him and got him on the right path and heading in the right direction, then when he came to that dry land, he went where God had called him to go. And that, my friends, is describing what is necessary for us to come into a right place, right fellowship, right harmony with God, the God of the second chance, repent and turn to him and obey and follow what he had given us to do. Not only do we find Jonah's second chance, but we also find Nineveh's second chance. When we're looking at Nineveh's second chance, then we're being, uh, being reminded not only of the servant of the Lord, but someone who had been far away from God. Nineveh is describing Gentiles, pagans, those who have never known or worshipped or trusted the true living God. And yet what we find from this great passage is God's missionary heart for all of the world to come to know him. Listen, the Bible never indicated that the scripture would be for a few elect people, one nation alone. 
Instead, that nation was to be a light that would bring blessing to all nations of the earth. They were to be a light that would proclaim salvation to all of the Gentiles, so all of the world would know that there is one true God and come to know that there's salvation only in His name. And this is a passage that's indicating the same, that God is going to extend His message and His mercy even to those that were pagans. So here's what we find. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out, and he said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. John Newland, who read our passage of Scripture earlier today, was right when he was saying, Isn't that a marvelous story about Nineveh and their repentance and how so many people turned to the Lord? As a matter of fact, it's such a great story that in all of recorded history, I don't think you would ever know of a greater awakening or a greater revival that took place with so many people, an entire capital city that had turned to the Lord and began walking with him. How is it that we could explain it? What is it? What are the elements that go into such a massive turning to the Lord? How is it that we would tie together the sovereignty of God, which is the theme of this entire book, with the mercy of God or with what we find in repentance? Is repentance somehow man conniving and figuring out a way to get his will over God? No. Instead, what we're going to find is that God is mercifully acting in this way. And so here is what I want to give by way of explanation. When it, when it comes to the revival and the awakening that took place in Nineveh, it was not due to the message. Everyone take a look at this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's verse 4. That's pretty much the summary of what he said. You basically have Jonah coming and saying, you're all going to hell, and I'm glad you're going there. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying. So you don't, have a, you don't have a compelling, passionate message. You don't have tears of someone that is crying out. You don't have someone who is even telling them the way of escape. All he's doing is saying, in 40 days, you are going to be condemned and destroyed, and God is going to have his way with you. It's a message of judgment. There is nothing about that message that would cause people to repent in massive numbers. We don't find any kind of passion or compassion or care. We don't find that it's an eloquent message necessarily. I mean, some people I've read in different commentaries have said, oh, obviously Jonah was an eloquent prophet because he turned the entire nation away. Really? All I see is him preaching a condemnation that doesn't describe eloquence at all. It's not a long message. It's not an eloquent message. Uh, uh, it's certainly not a passionate message. So then how, how is it that we could explain it? Well... Too many people have overemphasized human responsibility that leads to repentance. And when they talk about human responsibility, they somehow, in the message that they preach, it will lead to coercion and manipulation, game playing, by which they're just trying to get people to make some sort of decision or turn a certain thing, way and do their own thing. This kind of coercion and manipulation is common in the American church. Um, I'm familiar with one conference of pastors that would get together and say, hey, if you want people to walk the aisle and if you want to see results, then, uh, then, you, then, well, here's one thing you can do. You can get people saying yes. And so the more that they say yes, the more likely they'll say yes when you offer an invitation. So if you uh, have someone out in the parking lot and say, hey, can we help you park your car? They say yes. You have someone meeting them at the door and say, hey, can we uh, help you find, uh, find your, uh, a nursery for your children? Yes. Hey, can we uh, take your code for you? Yes. Hey, can we offer you some coffee and a little bit of cream with that? Yes. And we keep saying, getting them to say yes, eventually by the end of the service, when we said, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior and raise your hand? Then they say yes. That's the kind of manipulation and coercion and game playing that doesn't in, in any way recognize God's sovereign, gracious, 
merciful work in repentance. Instead, they think that it's all about our message. It's all about coercion. It's all about what we do. But I want to convince you this morning that the message that Jonah preached had very little to do with the results that came. I want you to see that not only from this passage, but I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and help us all to recognize that it was not Jonah's great message that led to their repentance and to such a dramatic turning to the Lord. And that was true not only for Jonah, but it's true for any preacher of of the gospel. And it was true also for the Apostle Paul. Turn to 1 Corinthians. As you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, note his attitude when it comes toward preaching. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in a weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All of God's people can say amen to that. They say amen to that because we've come to recognize that it's not our message. It's not our eloquence. It's not our persuasive abilities. It is not our responsibility to bring people to repentance so that we don't coerce. We don't manipulate. We don't play games. We don't try to somehow get, elicit some sort of response that's not going to last. Instead, we recognize that it's the power of God that must move in the hearts of people. So you'll have times when you'll understand that uh, Jeff Anderson is a passionate preacher. Uh, I, don't want to just, I don't want to just tell the truth. I want to feel the truth. And I don't want to just feel the truth. I want people to live. In, and so I, I give all of my heart into my preaching. But even if I give all of my heart into my preaching, there's a recognition that all of my effort, all any kind of eloquence, any kind of persuasive ability, none of it ma- ma- amounts to a hill of beans. Because ultimately, it is God who is at work in the hearts of people to draw them to himself. Or as Jesus made it so very clear to us, no man can be saved unless the Father draw him. So we're going to preach with all of our heart, preach with all of our passion. But it is not the message that explains the results in Nineveh. Or what else could it be? Turn back to Jonah. When you look back at Jonah, you'll discover that it's not only not the message, but you'll also discover that it's not the minister. When it's not the minister, there are some people who look at Jonah and they say, oh, man. For Jonah to come into Nineveh and to get such a big response, it, there must have been something amazing about the man. I mean, he just got thrown up out of a uh, fish. And so maybe all of the acids that were in his stomach caused him to be bald and caused his skin to be bleached out. And maybe he looked like a phantom coming out. And maybe there was this uh, amazing message from people who said, hey, we just saw a guy got, he just got thrown up out of a fish. And all of a sudden, here's this guy. And so there's a paving of the way by which everyone says, see the amazing man who got thrown up out of the fish. His name is going to be Jonah and he's coming with a message. That is totally missing the point. The whole point of this passage is that it's not the minister. There's nothing fantastic. There's nothing that draws attention about him. When I consider that it's not the minister that makes the big difference, here's what I especially note. I note Jesus Christ himself. By the way, would he be the greatest minister that ever existed? Jesus Christ? For sure. And Jesus said of Jonah and of the people of Nineveh, he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against the people of my generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But one greater than Jonah is here among you. And when he preached, you didn't repent, which is telling me that when it comes to repentance and people's response in such an amazing way, it is not about the man. It's not about the minister. It's not the one who's preaching. 
We find that to be true. Not only what Jesus just said about Nineveh, comparing that to the people of his day, but we find that to be true also when it comes to, to a, a parable Jesus told. Jesus told about a rich man and Lazarus. You may remember Lazarus was a beggar, and Lazarus had the dogs lick his wounds, and he had nothing. And, but he's a man who trusted God, and so when he died, Lazarus was carried away into Abraham's bosom. The rich man was the one who lived sumptuously. He ate, he, 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 ate, uh, he was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he, he ate good food, and everything was going well for him. And it says the rich man died, and because he hadn't trusted in God, and because he was a follower of his own ways, the rich man died, and, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. <clears throat> when he was in torment, he looked over Abraham's bosom, and he said, Would you please send, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, that he might dip the tip of his finger in some water to come cool my tongue, because I'm tormented in this flame. Abraham said to him, no, you see that there's this gulf fixed between us, so it's not possible for us to go. Uh, and he said, you enjoyed all of your life during the life that you lived. You had everything good, and this man suffered. Well, now he's enjoying all of his while you suffer the consequences of your sin. So the man said this. He said, all right, if, Abraham, if Lazarus can't come and relieve my torment then at least send Lazarus back so that he'll warn my brothers so that my brothers don't also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, well, he's got Moses and the prophets. He said, no, no, but not Moses and the prophets. If someone were to go from the dead, they would listen to them. And he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't listen even if a dead man came and preached to them. In other words, it's not about the minister who gives. So Jonah's coming as almost a dead man who's come out of this fish. It's not about him being a dead man. It's not about his story. It's not about him at all. It's not about the message he preached, because that certainly wasn't compelling. It wasn't about the, the minister himself, because that is not what is going to make the difference. People would have listened to him even if he had risen from the dead, according to what Jesus was describing. What then makes the difference? There's only one word, mercy. The only difference is the mercy of God that enters in and, and does a special work in the hearts of these people. And when we see God's mercy within this, we're going to find two things. Men repenting and God relenting. And both of those are found based upon the mercy of God that is found in this passage. By men repenting, let's keep reading. reading. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. When we think of men repenting, there are several different words describing. First of all, they believed God. Now, brief little message. In 40 days, judgment is going to come. That's the word of the Lord. And they believed that brief little message, which is telling us that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Even it's a small little message that is being given. It's the word of God that is doing a special work in their hearts, and they believed. The other thing that I find interesting about this is belief is the definition of everything else that is going to take place. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And basically, that sets the tone that salvation always has been, whether it's Nineveh or Jerusalem. Whether it's ancient times or modern times, anyone who has ever gotten right with God has gotten right with God because of belief. So the message of the Lord Jesus Christ is the same message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or believe in me and you'll have everlasting life. This belief is what is necessary. But what I love about this is not just a description of men repenting, starting with their belief, but it's describing what repentance and faith are and what true saving faith really looks like. 
Notice not only their belief, but also notice their humility. The people of Nineveh believed and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. To proclaim a fast meant that instead of saying, hey, we only have 40 days to live, time for us to eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. We only have 40 days, let's get this thing done. Instead, they go on a fast, and they don't eat anything, because they're saying, how can I eat? Now, some people think of a fast as being a discipline. This is not in any way indicating that there's a 40-day fast that goes on, and somehow someone came in and gave a seminar. Here's how you could do a 40-day fast without killing yourself. We're going to get this juice, special juice product, and then you drink these things, and if you take these vitamins and supplements, you'll be okay, and you can do a 40-day fast, and it's going to be a great blessing in your life. That's not what he's getting at. I'm not talking about 40-day discipline. Instead, he's talking about a fast that is a flat-out desperation. A flat-out desperation that says, you are going to die. Our city is going to be destroyed. It's going to be leveled. It's going to be totally wiped out. And people said, how in the world can we eat and drink in such a time as this? All we can do is call out to God for mercy. This is a fast that is a biblical desperation that doesn't have to be trained and developed and worked up toward. Instead, this is something that cries out to God and says, I need you more than anything. And it's ultimately a description of humility. We find their humility not only in the fast, but we find their humility in the sackcloth that they take. When they wear the sackcloth, sackcloth is what you would wear if you're the poorest of people or if you're grieving, mourning for someone that's been lost. And so in both of those senses, these people are grieving for the condition that they're in, and they're putting themselves into a poor place where even the king lays aside his kingly garments and beautiful settings, and instead he takes up that which is the most impoverished of people. In other words, the people of Nineveh were exactly opposite of the church of Laodicea that you find in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it describes a church, a certain group of people who think that they are rich, well-fed, clothed, and they have need of nothing. The Bible says you don't know that you are poor and blind and miserable and naked. In other words, our idea of ourselves sometimes is, look at how great I am and how much I have to offer God. Instead, what God wants to hear is not... Thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other publicans and Pharisees or all these other all these other sinners. Thank you that I fast three times a day and do all these wonderful things. Instead, God wants to hear the prayer that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where there's the publican who couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven because he was so humbled by his sin, smote his breast and asked for mercy. Or whether it's the exact opposite of Laodicea. That's what you find in Nineveh. And what you find in Nineveh are people who are humbled and broken. And they're recognizing that they deserve the judgment that God is bringing upon them. Have you ever gotten humbled enough to where you realize that you deserve the judgment that God will bring upon you? Greatest problem in the American church today. That's not just America. I guess it's humanity. The greatest problem among people today is people who do not recognize their need for a savior. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a thief. I'm not a homosexual. I must be okay. They are the same as it's always been, self-righteous people who don't recognize their need for a Savior. And the only ones who can ever be saved are those who humbly recognize that when God says, 40 days and judgment is coming, God, I deserve the judgment. I deserve this message. I deserve exactly what you would bring to me because the wages of sin is death. And that's not just the wages of certain kind of sins. That's the wages of my sin. And I deserve death and chastisement and wrath because I am a sinner. And as a sinner, I haven't been pleasing to a holy God that is pure. Let me take just a moment to convince some of you that you're a sinner. The Bible says if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you're guilty of all. 
That means that God is so holy, so pure, so righteous that you could obey all of the Ten Commandments and do one lie, and that one lie will make you a liar, and you've fallen short of the righteousness of God. That's why the Bible tells us that we are all as an unclean thing, and all of us, all of our righteousnesses are like a filthy rag. Let me take one step further. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. It's easy to come in and read the book of Jonah and say, wow, that guy was really rebellious against God. Why did he run the exact opposite direction until you understand that he went his own way in the same way that you go your own way? And all of us, like sheep, have in our own way gone our own way and defied and gone against a holy God. And until we get humbled and broken and recognize that we deserve exactly what God has just said, we will never be able to get on this path of repentance and finding the second chance or the mercy that God extends. So we find these people believing, we find these people humbling themselves, and when we find them humbling themselves, we also find them repenting. Let's describe that, or let's see it. Here's what he says. He causes it to be proclaimed and published throughout all of Nineveh. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, nor let them eat or drink water. Does that mean that somehow the dogs and the cats and the horses and the cattle could pray to God and cry out for mercy? No. It was a recognition that even those dogs and cats and horses and cattle and goats would all be destroyed if we're all to be destroyed. Jonah came with his message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. The word overthrown is the same word that you would use to describe Sodom and Gomorrah being overthrown. That doesn't mean that there's just bad guys that are going to come in and now you're going to be under their rule. That means that you will be totally destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah. Has anyone taken a vacation Sodom and Gomorrah recently? Not in, the, not in the New Testament lands, because if you go there, it is totally destroyed, flattened, wiped out. It is still a bunch of ashes, even to this day. And so when they recognize that we're to be overthrown, that is wiped out and destroyed. That means that all of our animals are going to be destroyed as well. And so if all of our animals, if every plant, if everything is in a horrible place, then we need to humble ourselves and cry out to this God. And notice what they say this. This is beautiful. Look at verse 8 and 9. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? What's being described here is a biblical definition of repentance. Let us turn from our evil ways. Let us turn to God. And as we turn to God, perhaps he will relent and not bring this judgment upon us. There are too many people who have a wrong understanding of repentance. And repentance, especially in American churches like ours, has fallen on hard times to where some people don't even like the word repent. They say, oh, repent, that describes a different gospel, whereas our gospel is believe. Well, here's what I would tell you. If Acts 16.31 says, how is it that someone is to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. All of us would say amen. Belief, simple belief, right? Well, the same book of Acts is also proclaiming that believe is the same as repent. And that's why Acts 20 tells us that God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so what you find is the repentance and conversion that's described in the book of Acts is not somehow contrary or opposite. It's not some sort of works that's opposite of faith. Instead, it's two sides of the same coin. If I take a coin and have heads and tails, and they're both the same coin, then you take that coin and you say faith is on one side of it and repentance is on the other side of it it's the same thing we're describing the same thing and so we're not saying that belief is contrary to repentance because repentance 
scripturally, is never a work that we do to manipulate or coerce God or to somehow convince him to be merciful to us. Repentance is what true faith is. And what repentance is, is a change of direction, a change of mind. Now, Jonah had been going his own way. And when he repented, he said, okay, I'm going to stop going my own way and I'm going God's way. He turned to him. But when it comes to these Ninevites, these Ninevites were on a path and it says that this path is leading to destruction. 40 days and it's going to be wiped out and destroyed. And so they turn away from their sin. They turn away from self-confidence and they're turning to a savior. And that is exactly what you find in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it says that men are to turn away from their iniquities and they're to turn away from their idols to the one true God. And so repentance has always been demonstrated with that threefold turn, a turn from sin. Does that mean that somehow all these people of Nineveh said, okay, we're going to stop sinning. And if we just stop sinning, if we turn over a new leaf and resolve to do better, maybe God will bargain with us and give us more time. That's not what they're doing. Instead, they're recognizing that they're evil, that they're violence is worthy of judgment. They know that what God has just said is that we're going to be judged, we're going to be destroyed, and guess what? We deserve that because of our sin. And if we maybe turn from our evil and turn from our sin and agree with God, then maybe by doing, getting off of that path of destruction, maybe we'll be in a right place. And you cannot be a Christian until you've come to recognize that your sin offends a holy God. And that your sin is separating you from God. And that the sin that you have committed is something not to be glamorized and sought after and pursued and protected. But that sin is something to be turned away from. Not as a resolve to say, I'm going to stop doing it. Because guess what? You can never stop doing it. If you think somehow you're going to resolve and say, well, I'm going to just, I'm going to quit smoking within these 40 days. And then somehow God will save me. That's not it. Repentance is a recognition that sin brings judgment, and it's a turning away from that that says, I don't want to pursue that path anymore. Not only do you turn from sin, you turn from self. And the turn from self is all of this humility that, again, is getting impoverished. They're not figuring out, hey, we don't have 40 days. We better build up the army that can help protect us and strengthen us. They're not figuring out a plan to to save themselves. They're not saying, hey, we only have 40 days. We better store up as much water as we can to put out the fires. They're not coming up with that plan. They're certainly not saying, let's just figure out how we can eat and drink and be merry. Instead, it's 40 days. And if God has been merciful to us by giving us a 40-day warning, Jonah doesn't come and say, hey, everyone, be, just, just turn to God and maybe he'll be merciful. Jonah never gives that message. The only hint of mercy that you find is 40 days. 40 days is somehow indicating that God isn't killing us when we need it right now. Instead, if he's giving us those 40 days, maybe he'll even be more merciful and we can get those other times. So now they're calling upon it. Think about the man. Think about this man and his lack of compassion. And let's contrast it this way. You ever hear about a man named Daniel? Daniel had gone to Babylon in a similar situation. When he went to Babylon and the king of Babylon... The king had killed his family, killed his loved ones, destroyed his home city. And here's Daniel now coming to pronounce a a message of judgment against Nebuchadnezzar and said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree that's going to get cut down and God's judgment is upon you. But here's what he said. Daniel said, but if you'll just repent, if you just turn from your wicked ways and if you just cast yourself upon the mercy of God, maybe all of this can be diverted. Daniel had such a compassion for the man of Babylon and for Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel had such compassion. Jonah didn't have any of that compassion. Jonah doesn't have any of that compassion. And yet the people hear his message. 40 days and judgment is coming. And when they hear that message, they realize we deserve judgment. We cannot save ourselves. So they turn from self, turn from sin. And now they're turning to a savior. Perhaps God will relent. 
That, my friends, is a recognition of God and his mercy and compassion and, and forgiveness. And that is what faith is. Faith is ultimately this repentance of seeing your sin as it brings judgment, turning from yourself because you're not able to save yourself or do anything to manipulate God, and now turning to God, and God saves. Now, when we find this repentance that's taking place, we find not only man relenting, but we, or man repenting, but we find God relenting. Let's get a better idea of this. Everyone take a look at verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and, and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Suddenly, we find human responsibility of the human repentance relating to God in a kind of some, a way that's difficult for us to grasp. Here's what we find. What we find is God wants all men to repent. Second Peter describes it when he says the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, uh, but that all should come to repentance. It is God's desire for people to repent. Not only is it God's desire for people to repent, it's God's command for people to repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. You still tracking with me? But it's not only God's desire, and it's not only God's command, it's also something that must be granted by God because the Bible tells us that we pray so that perhaps some men may be granted repentance to acknowledge the truth of Second Timothy. And in Second Timothy, it's reminding us that repentance is ultimately not the king and Nineveh figuring out how they can control God. A repentance is a it's, a, it's an act of God's mercy upon this place to where God is granting them the re- repentance in spite of a horrible minister and in spite of a shallow message that's not nearly full, filled with compassion. So they don't have, it's not about the message. They're not about the minister. It's about the mercy of God, that God is the one who's been working in all of this way. So some of you say, wait a second, who's in control of this thing? Do you really think that the God who's in control of the storm and the, and the whale, that he's going to be controlled and manipulated by hum, humanity? Humanity is small. We're weak. We're frail. God is demonstrating even his mercy and his sovereignty, even in this act, that when God is demonstrating his mercy toward all of these people, it is God who is sovereignly at work in this, and God is relenting. Now you say, wait, how can it be that God would relent? How can God change his mind? God told his own uh, uh, prophet, Balaam, in the book of Numbers, God is not a man that he should relent, or God is not a man that he should turn. God's not a man that he's going to be coerced. What he says, he will do. And here's what God has said. God has said it many times. God has said, if you will turn from sin, you'll receive mercy. If you continue in your sin, you're going to receive judgment and wrath. And God hasn't changed that message. So God sovereignly is not putting somehow the control there out for you to just choose your own way. Instead, God is saying, here is here the message. If you will turn, and that's what they're saying, perhaps God will relent. Where would he have gotten that message? Where would he have figured out that maybe God would relent? I want you to hear it from the mouth of some other prophets. Turn to Joel. If you're in Jonah, you have to go backward. You find Amos and Obadiah. And just before Amos, you'd find Joel. And Joel 2, verses 13 and 14, it describe these same words. It's almost a direct quotation. Now, therefore, says the Lord, I'm in verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. 
In that passage here is, again, God is speaking to the people of Israel and Judah. When God is speaking to Israel, Jerusalem, Judah, he's saying, turn away from Turn away from your sin, and God will relent from all of the judgment that you are deserving. God will not give you the judgment if you'll simply turn to Him. And how do you turn to Him? Turn to Him with your heart. He's not looking for your sacrifice. He's not looking for, he's not looking for your recommitment. He's looking for a humble and contrite heart. And if you'll turn to Him with your heart, then He will be gracious. That echoes the word of Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. That's a big, big book. It's easier to find. You find Isaiah. That's a big book that's uh, toward the front of your Bible from where you are. Then you find Jeremiah, which is right after it. So Jeremiah is another easy passage to find. Big old book. Turn to chapter 18. And in Jeremiah chapter 18, look at verses 5 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, the clay is in the potter's hand. So you are in my hand, O house of Israel. Here's the whole potter and clay analogy that we've heard many, many times, that the potter, the sovereign one, is able to do whatever he chooses. Well, what does he choose to do? Here's what he says. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. That is Nineveh. As soon as they heard that disaster, judgment of their sin, what they had done, they turn away from that. And when they turn, God forgives them, turns from his evil, and he stops the disaster that he had thought to bring upon them because of their sin. Look at verse 9, though. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good within with, with, with which I said I would benefit it, that is Jerusalem. That is Israel. Israel planned all this good. God had planned all this good for them, but they went their own direction. When they went their own direction, they lost the blessing of the Lord. And there we have it. So wait, so wait Jeff, you still haven't explained it to me. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? Yes. I've explained it to you as much as I possibly can. I've explained it to you saying God is God and we are not. We can't manipulate his plan, either as a minister or a messenger. It's all of God's mercy. And yet in God's sovereignty, he also places a responsibility upon men. And the responsibility was Jonah, go and preach. And the Ninevites turned and repented and responded to God. And somehow God is absolutely sovereign, even though man bears this responsibility, which comes to a place of tremendous comfort to me. If it was all my responsibility to save people in Colorado Springs, and if I didn't present a good enough message for them, that would be a weight that would be far beyond what I'd be able to bear. Can anyone agree with that? If it all depended upon me as a minister, that if uh, I'm healthy enough, fit enough, if I dress nice enough, if I'm compelling enough, if I don't have a sore throat, scratchy throat that day, then somehow that's going to be compelling and people will listen. You know what? That's far more weight than I am able to bear. But if it's God's mercy that is at work in all of this, and so that God is not only desiring repentance and commanding repentance, but if it's God is the one who's granting repentance, then suddenly I see that it's God who's at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And suddenly I give praise and, and, and honor to him because he is not only sovereign, he is merciful. And it's this merciful sovereign who is the God of the second chance. Some of you are servants of the Lord you already trusted Christ as your Savior. You repented. You turned from your sin. You turned to the Savior. You trusted Christ as your Savior. And I'm not giving the message of Nineveh to you, of judgment. I'm, giving the, I'm going to give the message of Jonah to you. Chastisement. 
difficulty, heartache. If you keep going your own way, it's going to be hard. Turn and simply repent and trust him. Obey and go where the Lord is telling you to go. Others of you need the message of Nineveh. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And since you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the wages of your sin is death. And you're facing eternity in hell. You're facing separation from God. And there's nothing you can do to save yourself or to cleanse yourself or make yourself acceptable to God. The message to you is humbly believe. Turn from your sin. Turn to a Savior. And God will relent. And instead of giving you the judgment and wrath and chast- the, the judgment and wrath that you deserve, instead He will be merciful and gracious, and He can do that because He takes all that judgment and wrath and He's placed it upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can give even a greater message than Jonah because we have a greater messenger. His name is Jesus, and that greater messenger, Jesus, has given us the message that says, "Turn to Me, believe in Me, and I will save you." Let's bow together, please, and let's pray. How we love you and thank you, God, that you are the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and even up to the 70 times 70th chance. Lord, we need those chances because we as your people continually walk and go our own way. And we want you to examine our steps and turn our feet to your statues right now. Lord, would you allow your people, some who have been living in points of disobedience or rebellion or going their own way, turn your people back to yourself. May they walk in humble obedience. Turn them, Lord, we pray right now. There are others, Lord, who are on that place where they are like the people of Nineveh. They need to hear a message of judgment that says they cannot save themselves. And they are bearing the sin for all of their wicked way. And they are going to fall in the hands of an angry God who will judge sin. The only way is for them to believe your message, to turn from their sin, turn to your promise of, of saving them. And if they will humble them, self under the mighty hand of God that you will exalt them in due time. Lord, may there be a heart's cry from some people today that would say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I receive Jesus Christ as my savior and I accept the grace that is found in him alone. Lord, how I pray that you will accomplish your purpose through your word today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.